Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show, Eurogroup president Jeroen Dijsselbloem says the EU must play nice in Brexit negotiations. If any politician thinks that you can scare your voters by being very nasty to your neighbours, I think that's a completely wrong approach. But to start, Hollywood is still reeling from that Oscar mix-up. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. Aside from the obvious way Moonlight was eclipsed by the big-budget favourite La La Land, Gaddy Epstein, our media editor, is here to tell us more about the business of independent films and why they struggle to get the recognition they deserve. But first of all, Gaddy, tell us about Moonlight. What's it about and what sort of budget did it have? Well, Moonlight is really unlike any other film that has won Best Picture at the Oscars before. It's got the smallest budget. It was a budget of about $1.5 million. Very few people had seen it, too. One of the smallest audiences of any Best Picture winner. It, it had grossed $22 million in the U.S., which is great for a small-budget film, but it's you know tiny for in terms of audience, a few hundred thousand people. And its story is unlike any other film that's won Best Picture. It's about a black gay youth in Miami neighborhood called Liberty City, a tough neighborhood, and his coming of age, his struggles coming of age with the, the son of a crack-addicted mother searching for his sexuality. It's a beautiful film. Now, another small-budget movie that I know you like and have written about, Manchester by the Sea, also did well, won, won a couple of prizes. Are we in a, a golden age for the independent sector? Well, indie films are certainly being recognized, and they recognized critically and by the Academy. But in terms of box office success, I would say indie films aren't getting their due. And I've spoken on this program before about blockbusters and how uh, increasingly audiences are, are going to those and the, and the results at the box office are skewed towards blockbusters. Conversely, indie films have not done well. The median low-budget film uh, over the last 15 years, a film with a budget of under $10 million, has returned 45 cents on the dollar at the box office. And that's less than half of what a big studio film would return. And, of course, uh, you can make money on an indie film. That's not every film that returns 45 cents on the dollar. But studios spread their risk around amongst all these big budget films. And then they make a you know a huge hit like Star Wars. You can't really do that. Indie, the, the folks who finance indie films, they mostly are losing money on their films. And then there's every once in a while a few films like this that just you know go gangbusters. But does it really matter that they don't make money at the box office? Surely... A lot of people now, most people perhaps, watch films from the comfort of their own couch at home. They use services like Netflix, Amazon, right. iTunes, and so on. Well, it does matter because that kind of ancillary res- revenue has declined over the years. And uh, indie films used to make uh, make their money back through several different means. One of the key ones was DVDs and Blu-ray and that sort of thing. And the revenue from those has plummeted. The revenue from individual kind of film sales, whether it's iTunes or DVDs, has gone down from $25 billion in 2005 to $12 billion last year. 
Now, some of that money is being replaced by Netflix and Amazon-type subscription revenues. Now, obviously, there's a big rise in Netflix and Amazon subscriptions, but not all of that film money goes to indie films. It mostly goes to the big-name films. I think your average indie film, your typical indie film, is not going to get much out of the Netflix-Amazon effect. Do indie films have a future? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, there's, it's easier never to, to finance a film and to, to make one because it is, it is cheaper to make one. I mean, you can make a film for $20 on your iPhone, as one film I wrote about recently was done and has found an audience on Amazon Video Direct, a platform where you can just upload your film directly and get an audience and you get paid a small royalty per hour viewed. But that's really small change. To make a film that gets released in the cinemas, it still takes a little bit of money. Now, it is easier and the costs have come down. But the risks have not really gone down. You're still going to you're going you're probably going to lose money. If anything, the risk has probably gone gone up for your typical film. Cody Epstein, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, the European Union faces a growing list of threats from migration to Brexit to the rise of Eurosceptic parties, and just when you thought the problem had gone away, there may be yet another Greek disaster looming on the horizon. So, what is the future of the EU amid all these challenges? Will it survive or will it flounder? Sasha Nauta, our European finance correspondent, joins me now. Sasha, to look into this question of the EU's future, you went to The Hague to meet with the president of the Eurogroup, Jeroen Dijsselbloem. For those who aren't EU finance wonks, explain just what the Eurogroup is and why does Mr Dijsselbloem matter? Well, the Eurogroup is the meeting of finance ministers of the 19 euro countries who come together to discuss things, particularly political things, around the common currency. And Mr Dijsselbloem has been the president of the group for the last four years. The reason why he matters uh, and why a lot of people might know his face is because he played a particularly important role in the negotiations around the Greek crisis. So a lot of Greeks will know his face from placards as the sort of symbol of, let's say, evil northern lenders. And you follow all this quite closely, but did anything Mr Dijsselbloem say actually surprise you? Well, I was quite surprised by his relative optimism. I mean, he's seen firsthand how close the union has come to crisis. I wasn't expecting as optimistic a story around the state of the EU. Well, let's listen to some of what he had to say. How did the interview start off? Yeah, so we began the interview with the challenges facing Europe. Later this month is the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome at the start of the European project. So that seemed like a good place to start off. Um, and I asked him whether European crises were truly a thing of the past. I think so. If you look at the eurozone, I mean, e- economic growth is at 1.7, 1.8% at the moment uh, and still increasing in almost all of our countries whereas our expected long-term growth for the Eurozone is at 1.5. So we are doing better than you could have expected for an ageing continent. So are we out of the crisis? Yes, in that respect, we're out. Uh, Have we dealt with all the negative effects of the crisis? No. So it takes a lot of time to deal with all the after-effects of the crisis. Sasha, you say you were taken aback by his optimism, but he would say that, wouldn't he? It's his job. You're right, he would say that. On the other hand, he faces an election very soon in a country that's become very Eurosceptic. So I was expecting him to just be a little bit um, more measured in his optimism. On the day that we interviewed him, economists at Rabobank, a Dutch bank, 
spoke to a national newspaper and warned that the EU was heading for a cliff edge unless it really speeded up reforms. Um, Here's how the minister responded to that. I tend to take a more positive view. If you realise that it took the US to establish the Federal Reserve, and it it took them about 120 years to set it up. And then if you realise in what speed we set up the Monetary Union and in the recent couple of years set up the Banking Union... It's unprecedented. Uh, So this whole image of indecisiveness and the slowness of things in Europe, if you take a bit more of a step back and look at it from a historic perspective, it's going very, very fast. So no, I I disagree. I think um, things are moving a lot faster than some of the critics are saying. And we're economically heading in the right direction. Our banks are in a better shape. Even the Italian banks are being cleaned out at the moment. Uh, The economy is in a much better shape. Investment is picking up. Unemployment is going down. Before bankers start telling the politicians to, uh, to pick up pace, perhaps they should pick up their own pace. So it's quite typical for him to have a little bit of a go at bankers. He's, he's often referred to their joint responsibility in, in creating first the crisis and with that the climate for populism to, to flourish. But when I asked him about the future crises, he was quite, well, firstly quite resistant to the use of the word crisis. And he was very optimistic, actually, about the type of Europe we might get after September when we've had a number of elections. I specifically asked him about whether he was hopeful of perhaps some sort of a French-German grand bargain in um, working more closely in governing the currency union. Looking at polls and at how the electoral system works in the different countries, at the end of the year, we will again have moderate centre Uh, party governments in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, Italy, I expect will come later. And at the end of the year, they could very well have a very pro-European Bundeskanzler in Germany and a pro-European president in France. The greatest surprise of it could be that, again, the sort of the the Berlin-Paris axe becomes strong again, which we have missed over the last couple of years. Europe always functions better if the French and the Germans sort of get together and find a way forward. If that comes back at the end of the year, I would certainly welcome it very much. Now, Sasha, one area where a lot of people say the EU has not been functioning very well is, of course, migration. Now, I know you raised that as well with uh, Mr. Dyselbroom. What did he have to say about that? Yes, this is where indeed he does a bit of a mea culpa and admits, accepts that the EU wasn't swift nor effective enough in handling the migration crisis. Well, when we got rid of the internal borders and created the Schengen zone, we should have immediately, at a European level, have organised the external border control. And we didn't, and we knew that was a huge risk, and the risk materialised, and it was called the migration crisis of 2015. Now, we're dealing with that. We have an agreement with Turkey. We're working with northern African countries. We have set up uh, the border control, uh, EU border control, working on that. But it was too late, let's be fair. And this sense of migration not being in control is quite fundamental because people in Europe know that they, and they are very attached to their welfare states, and they know that if migration is uncontrollable and too sizable, it threatens the welfare state. So as long as we can manage it, I think people will be much more open to uh, migration. If we don't manage it, people will simply lose their faith. And just to be clear, when you say manage it, does that mean set particular numbers per year that Europe can take? Or or what do you mean with manage it? 
So yes, there is a link with numbers. We have to be realistic about this. If a million people come into Germany in one year, that creates a lot of political stress in Germany. It, it has to do also with the size uh, of the uh, influx. Now, now there's a natural connection, I guess, between migration and another, uh, out of respect to Mr. Dasselblum, I won't say crisis, another challenge facing the EU, and that's Brexit. What, what position did you take on that? Well, I focused on the city of London in particular um, and the future of London as, as a financial centre. And he essentially said that it is not in Europe's interest to damage the city. He's taking quite a mature approach there and said, you know, there's, there's no point right now in taking a punitive um, approach to, to the UK. I think that the outcome of the Brexit long term will be negative because trade will become more difficult. Sorry to interrupt you. Negative for who? I think it will obviously be negative for the UK, but also for Europe. It's about trade relations between the UK and Europe. It's not my choice, not my decision, but it's going to happen. So I don't think we need to add to misery by talking about punishment. And if any politician thinks that you can scare your voters by being very nasty to your neighbours, I think that's a completely wrong approach. Let's turn now to Greece. It's nearly seven years since the first bailout and we're seeing rumblings about yet another calamity. We wrote in our own paper in previous weeks that Greece has become a bystander in its own tragedy. Sasha, do you think we can avoid a disaster? Well, I think it's a promising sign that since I spoke to Mr. Dijsselbloem, the creditors seem to have become a little bit friendlier with each other again. In fact, as we speak here today, um, negotiations should be resuming, which is a very positive sign. However, of course, there is such a feeling of deja vu um, as we've had in previous years with Greece. The real question is ultimately the ultimate deadline rather than the four deadlines before the deadline. And the ultimate deadline is July when Greece faces a 7 billion payment. And I think the closer we get to that, the more of a sense we will have of whether or not we will see a return of another Greek crisis. Before we listen to Mr. Dijsselbloem, it's worth remembering that I spoke to him before the Eurogroup meeting in which they were going to discuss this very subject. And he was therefore understandably tight-lipped about what was to come. Look, Greece has come out of a deep crisis, which was caused by really bad policies in the Greek uh, previous Greek uh, governments. At the start of the crisis, their deficit was minus 15. Uh, and when the crisis hit... Uh, everyone who had any money took it out of the country. So it's a, really a process of rebuilding a country, building institutions, building legislation, fighting corruption, setting up a tax system, getting trust back in the economy. Now, this takes time. The IMF has been very helpful to get the right reforms in place, to sort out the budget uh, and make it sustainable, and a lot of progress has been made. And just to be absolutely clear... You don't agree with the IMF's point that by 2022 there would be some massive catastrophe in Greece, because of, specifically on the debt issue? No, absolutely not. Greece is recovering and has shown that once there is political and economic stability, growth will return. And they've had uh, four subsequent quarters of growth now. Unemployment is starting to go down. Um, investment picking up. So trust is coming back to Greece. And there really fundamentally is no reason why a country like Greece could not follow suit to all the other Eurozone countries that are now having 2, 3, even 4% growth. And they're heading in the right direction. 
Well, we'll see how this plays out over the coming months and whether or not Mr Dyselbloom's optimism has been warranted. Sasha Nata, thank you very much. Thank you. What do you think? Clearly, the EU's future is not plain sailing, but is it really on the rocks? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist, or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.